this, uh, my name is Paul again. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at Newport. Uh, last week, uh, my wife, Pastor Britta, who's the other co-pastor, uh, she invited us into this practice of holding in our minds uh, a moment that inspired awe, an awe-inspiring moment, and to kind of lead us in the practice of thinking that through, of, of holding that there. And uh, I was really grateful uh, for the way that she framed that invitation. Uh, because of the language she kind of used uh, opened up my mind, at least, to this understanding that it isn't just about kind of like looking up at the stars and being like, oh, there's certainly a part of that, right? But it was also this invitation, this thing that kind of like, like the holy terror, right? That there's the, the fear of God is both this reverence and this awe. And at the same time, there's kind of this like, uh, like this unsettling feeling because there's something so significant happening. And so because of the way that she kind of framed this invitation to consider a a moment of awe, immediately what came to my mind is the birth of my children. Uh, This is a a high and holy moment, right? This uh, significant moment of getting to be in the room to welcome my kids into the world. Incredible, holy, uh, amazing. And I think also uh, sometimes we have a tendency to kind of idealize Uh, that whole process, right? Uh, First of all, families come together in all different kinds of ways, right? That's that's a reality. That's true. Families come together in all different kinds of ways. Uh, But in our journey in particular, uh, there's sometimes kind of this description of kind of this idyllic moment, right? Like uh, as the baby enters the world, the the room is going to be dark, and and there's going to be a diffuser kind of pumping in mint into the room, and there's relaxing music and a a swallow flies by the window and your child enters the world. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. This was a, a wonderful and a holy and a, a powerful thing. And also, whoa, this is like intense, right? Uh, my son, amazing. I love both my kids. It's incredible. We're expecting our third. Love kids. Uh, my son, uh, Pastor Britta, was in labor for 92 hours. 92 hours. If you're doing the math, that's like days in labor, right? Uh, my daughter, uh, she was what's called breech. Didn't know what that meant. Uh, breech, I found out, means that her head was up here, needs to be down here. And so our doctor uh, said, okay, we got to turn her. And so thankfully, Pastor Britta's body responded and our daughter was able to spin around. Uh, but that meant that she came a little bit early. And one of the things we didn't know at the time, because how could you, is that in that process, more than likely, uh, the cord got wrapped around her neck. And so as she was kind of coming into the world, uh, the night before, her heart rate kept dropping. Thankfully, everything was totally okay. But uh, the nurse that was attending uh, that evening uh, was perhaps not the most non-anxious presence. (laughs) And so she would come to the room and be like, you got to flip over. you got to flip over right now. We're like, oh, okay. Is everything okay? Oh, everything's just fine. (laughs) Not helpful, right? Not helpful. I was like a mess. I was a wreck trying to figure all this stuff out. And as I was thinking about this, I realized this is a really important thing for us to remember. That if we kind of hold this ideal or this idyllic picture in our mind, and we approach these things with an either or, we set ourselves up for this dissonance, kind of the discordance that Andy was talking about, right? There's this dissonance. This isn't the way this was supposed to go. Uh, there's supposed to be a swallow flying by the window and someone else is coming in, like flipping our, my wife over. What's happening? Right? This isn't how this is supposed to go. And so when we approach these things with an either-or kind of mindset, we're automatically set up for disappointment and dissonance. 
And so the invitation for us this morning that I want to invite us to is this idea of a both and. Right, a both and mentality, and specifically a both and mentality in the context of our faith. Not an either this or that in our faith, but a both this and that in our faith. It was both an awe inspiring moment, getting to be in the room while my kids entered the world, and whoa, right? Both and both things are true, they are not mutually exclusive. We've been in a a series called Listen, as we've been paying attention to how we pay attention to God. And in particular, this month in October, we've been looking at these people called the prophets, who are people who have been set aside to proclaim the word of God to the people of God, so that they might continue to relate to God. That's what these prophets are doing. And so, uh, Pastor Scott began for us uh, at the beginning of October, talking about the prophet Elijah. And we've kind of in this uh, kind of sub-series of looking at the calling of the prophets, have been focusing on this question, what happens when we listen to God? What happens when we listen to God? And Pastor Scott's invitation was a welcome one, I think, for many of us. As Pastor Scott said, that when we, we, what happens when we listen to God is sometimes God is clear with a yes, sometimes God is clear with a no, and sometimes nothing. When we listen to God, it's as if nothing is happening. And there's some space there. Last week, uh, Pastor Britta, she uh, preached to us about the prophet Isaiah and the calling of Isaiah. And specifically that sometimes when we go to listen to God, we find ourselves wanting an answer. And she posed for us this really kind of uh, helpful reframe is that perhaps God might not want to just give us an answer, but what question might God be inviting us to? What happens when we listen to God? What question might God be giving us? And so this morning, as we look at the prophet Jeremiah, the invitation to this question of what happens when we listen to God, the invitation I want to invite us to this morning is a shift. What happens when we listen to God, it's a shift to a both and kind of thinking. That we approach our faith from both and, not either or. We're going to unpack that a bit as we go together. Uh, But first of all, this prophet Jeremiah, I feel for this guy. I mean, he drew the short straw. Right? He, uh, he's already uh, a young man. Uh, it says, you know, I'm young in the, in the book. Uh, we'll get to it in just a moment. But the message he's called to deliver, whew, I would not want to be told this is what I'm supposed to do. Jeremiah is tasked with just telling, like, it's not going great, y'all. Like, things are not looking so good. And so this is a really tricky invitation uh, to be invited into as a prophet. Uh, one, a call I wouldn't want to receive. Um, And it's a call that in a lot of ways looks at the question of what happens when God's people don't listen to God, right? Jeremiah is in many ways tasked to respond, what happens when the people of God don't listen to God, like over and over and over and over and over and over again for many, 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 many generations. They just keep stop listening to God. So what happens for a long time when they stop listening to God? So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take it out. Uh, We'll be in the book of Jeremiah, which comes right after Isaiah. Uh, There's a Bible in the pew in front of you as well, or behind you, uh, as the case may be. It'll also be on the screen in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, Pastor Britta said last week that Isaiah was like here, and so Jeremiah is like just a little bit further, like a little past halfway in your Bible, okay? The prophet Jeremiah, beginning in uh, Jeremiah 1, we're going to read this whole first chapter, this call of Jeremiah, because I think it frames for us this invitation for moving from either or thinking to both and thinking in our faith. 
Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Israel, uh, excuse me, people of Jerusalem went into exile. Just a quick pause. That was a lot of names and like a lot of word mush in my mouth. Um, what that's doing is it's defining where we are and when we are, right? That this is in the context of how the people of God would define their time ranges because of the kings, right? The kings that were ruling. And so this just frames where we are and when we are and who Jeremiah is, who's a priest in the line of the son of Hilakai in Anathoth, okay? So all that's doing is just setting up context. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Uh-oh. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Yikes. Right? This is, this is not an easy task. This is not an easy call that Jeremiah finds himself facing. And I think that sometimes we have a tendency to kind of read into the text or, or perhaps kind of have a one-sided way, an either-or mindset when we approach a text like this. And I think there's something a lot deeper going on of an invitation to a both-and way of understanding this passage. And so for us to kind of unpack this both-and-ness of the gospel and of the kingdom and of God, I think it's helpful to kind of understand just very briefly some context behind Jeremiah. Now, a lot of the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament, actually all of the Old Testament, is written about the people of God, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the Jerusalem, right? These people of God who are in a unique relationship with God and their uh, desire to kind of follow after being in this unique relationship with God. 
And in particular, a place became very important to them in Jerusalem because this is the place where the temple existed and a lot of their worshiping life was centered around this idea, right, of being in proximity to God and the temple and how they were going to engage this. And so this is a really big deal. The, the people of God being in Jerusalem was a really big deal. Now, uh, as things kind of progressed, there was this political climate where this empire called Babylon uh, was kind of coming in from different places, and uh, Judah and Jerusalem were kind of in this area, and they're kind of getting pinched out, right? There's this kind of big conflict that's coming. And they're in the way of the Babylonians kind of expanding their empire. They want to have more land. They want to have more power. They want to have more influence. And so there's this really big cataclysmic event for the people of God in 587 B.C., which is that the people of Israel are sent into exile and the temple falls. They are no longer in proximity to the temple in Jerusalem. This is a really, really big deal for the people of God. And this is the political landscape that Jeremiah is kind of entering into. But Jeremiah's perspective is to come to this reality, this political turmoil and upheaval with the Babylonian Empire trying to come over and, and take over the people of Jerusalem from a theological perspective. So Jeremiah is trying to help interpret for the people, how are we going to relate to God in light of what's happening in our world? This is a really profound thing, right? How, how is the theology of understanding of what's happening going to get fleshed out? And so as, uh, as Jeremiah is framing this theological perspective, there are three parts to this frame, three things that are really important to keep in mind, and we'll go through these very briefly. The first is the people of God had made a covenant with God, Yahweh, of how they were going to relate to one another. And that covenant centered around the Mosaic commandments, the Ten Commandments we often hear about. And so these rules and regulations were not just to have rules and regulations for rules and regulations' sake, they were to define how are we going to relate to one another? How are you going to be set aside and set apart as the holy people of God? And so the first frame that Jeremiah approaches is that covenant has been broken. The people have not honored their commitments. They haven't honored their covenant. And it's not about breaking the rule. It's about breaking the relationship. Okay, that's the first frame. Covenant. First frame. The second frame is that the pathos of Yahweh, or the heart of God, is to be an intimate relationship with God's people. God's heart is always to be in relationship with humanity. And so you can perhaps kind of start to see how there's a both and this, even into the way that Jeremiah approaches the book. The people of God have broken the covenant, yes, and the heart of God is to be in relationship with God's people. Two really important things to hold in tension with each other. The third thing is about the temple. Now, the people of God, they centered their life on the temple. The rules and the commandments all centered about how are they going to worship God at the temple. And those, those practices centered around the temple because the people of God believed that Yahweh, their God, the one true God, had taken up permanent residence in the temple in Jerusalem. So... To face exile, to face being displaced from Jerusalem, was not just that their whole life had been in upheaval. It's not just that they had to leave home. It's not just that their religious practice was completely decimated because they're not in proximity to the temple. It is that they are leaving the presence of God itself. This is like an exclusion from the Garden of Eden. 
Do you see how profound that is? How deeply painful that would be for a people who believe that the presence of God was uniquely present in the temple. And if they're not there, they're not with God. They're separated from God, God's self. This is a really big deal. And so these three frames are really important for how we understand what's happening in Jeremiah. The covenant, the pathos or the heart of God, and the temple. Covenant, heart, temple. Making sense? Okay. Admittedly, kind of big picture. So let's move to Jeremiah chapter 1. And look in verse 4. Uh, this, oh man, I just, I love this part. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you, in the womb, I knew you. Whoa. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows us as God weaves us together in our mother's womb. And here, it's one step further. Before even being formed in the womb, God knew Jeremiah. How powerful is that? That uh, picture of our kids forming Plato, right? That God knew us even before God started to form us. Talk about intimacy. Talk about a, a deep and rich abiding presence. I knew you even before I formed you. And then what does God continue to say? I, I, God, set you apart. I appointed you. This kind of relationship is a deeply intimate relationship. And what it does is it helps to reveal for us the nature and the character of who God is is. Because God, yes, absolutely knows uh, the, the nature of God's people, and it's important for us to recognize our identity within the context of our community, right? That's really important. And God knows Jeremiah, one person. The creator of all things, Yahweh, knows one person so intimately that God would call and appoint this one person. Do you see the kind of intimate relationship that's being modeled here? God, of all things, knows this one person in one time, in one place in history. This is significant intimacy. This is significant knowing. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Britt and I are expecting our third child, and a couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity uh, to go to our 20-week ultrasound appointment. Uh, both of our kids were born a little bit further north, and so we went to what's called, I found out, a general ultrasound tech, which all that means is they do ultrasounds for all kinds of things. And so as they were doing those, they could kind of show us things, but not a whole bunch, and they couldn't describe anything because they weren't trained, right? Our office down here, we are in a maternal clinic only, which means the people that do the ultrasounds, this is all they do for people who are expecting children. And so uh, this appointment was just like, whoa. And so uh, the ultrasound tech, you know, starts to do the thing, and the gray thing comes up on the screen, I'm like, oh, it's a bunch of gray clouds. Like, what is that? I have no idea what I'm looking at, but our ultrasound tech was like, brr, brr, like punches in all these things. Oh, that's your baby's gallbladder. Do you see right there? Those are the four chambers of your baby's heart pumping blood. What? Look at that right there. That's the beautiful spine of your child. Whoa. Talk about awe-inspiring. And this tech, she knew what she was doing. In many senses, she knew my child. She could show she knew my child, and then she could help us to see. Right? She knew, and so she could help us to see. And God, 
God is the one who not only is like, I know, and just punching all the things in, God is the one literally bringing together the fibers of every person's being of all time forever. God knows, and not just in the like, mm, I know, God knows everything about us, and so God helps us to see. And so in this deep knowing of Jeremiah, God helps Jeremiah, and by extension, the people of God, he helps them to see. And so it goes on to say that Jeremiah was uh, talking to God. He's like, I can't do this. I'm way too young. And God says, let me show you. Let me show you. This isn't just about you. This isn't just about your word. I'm going to literally put my words into your mouth. No coal this week, like last week. Right? Sounds familiar. Isaiah putting the coal in the mouth. I'm going to put my words into your mouth. And then God shows Jeremiah some things. God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see an almond branch. And God says, you've seen correctly, for I'm watching to make sure my word is fulfilled. Now, if you're like me, I was a little bit like, huh? You've seen correctly, you've seen an almond branch. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I had a footnote. I actually was looking at this <clears throat> last week while Pastor Bird was preaching. I didn't say that out loud. Uh, <clears throat> I may have been looking ahead just a little bit. My apologies. Uh, and so I saw this little footnote in my Bible that says, the word almond branch sounds almost exactly like the word watch in Hebrew, which is the language that the Bible, the Old Testament was written in. And so that for us would be like God saying, what do you see? And we say, I see a wristwatch. And God is like, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to make sure my word is fulfilled. Now, interestingly, this is the first recorded dad joke in scripture. <clears throat> Yahweh. Ugh. I tell you, <clears throat> uh, certainly it's a little bit like, really, like an almond branch? That's how you're going to, but it does point to something I think that's really important that invites us into this understanding of this intimacy with God. The word that's used there for watching is used a little bit later in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 6, when it refers to a lion waiting and watching its prey. Pretty powerful image, right? Now, I will admit when we hear that this word watching is associated with a lion watching its prey, that instills some holy terror into me. Like, is God just watching, just ready to pounce and is going to eat me as soon as I make a mistake? Like, whoa, that's pretty intense. But there's something to this picture that I think is really important for us to understand. That's an either-or way of understanding things, right? Either it's this way or it's that way. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, there is judgment. And. Think about a, a lion that watches and waits and pray. Is a lion just kind of like looking around, kind of watching or whatever? No. A lion has laser focus. There is immense intensity of watching, which again can feel a little bit intimidating. But the other part of that is if a lion is uh, intently watching, does it watch something that doesn't matter? Does a lion have that kind of intensity for looking at a leaf? No. A lion has that kind of intensity, that kind of watching, because that thing matters to the lion. And so the both and invitation of this watching of God is not just a lion who's ready to pounce when we make a mistake, but it's that God is so intent on paying attention because what we are talking about, our relationship with God, matters so much to God. Do you see the both andness of that image? It is intense, yes, and there is judgment, and it is hard and painful, and it's because it matters to God. It's because God is so intent on being in relationship with God's people that God wants to pay attention to it, because it matters. We matter to God. 
And so then uh, uh, Jeremiah goes on uh, with these other images. It's a little bit more straightforward. And he says, God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see this boiling pot coming from the north. And so he says, you've seen correctly, there's going to be this kind of destruction that's going to come from the north. Now, there's not a, a perfect one-to-one correlation of who or what those things may be, though there's interpretations on that. But what is true is once you spill the pot, the water's out. There's no putting the water back in the bucket. And so Jeremiah has to deal and grapple with the reality that the pot has been spilled. There is impending problems. There is conflict. The people of God are going to be displaced. This is true. And it's helpful to understand where the judgment comes in this context. Because if you look at verse 16, God says to Jeremiah, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. The reason there is judgment is because the people of God have broken the covenant. And it's not just because they've broken the rules, it's because they have severed and uh, fractured the relationship with God. They are worshiping other gods. They are practicing their life in a different way, a, a way that no longer honors the commitment to be in relationship with God, but rather they're gonna do their own thing. It's, a, it's really this idea of self-sufficiency. We've made it. And so we can just kind of be on easy street. We can do what we want. God's got us this far, now we're good. And the boiling pot says, oh, but this is not how it was meant to be. I want to be in relationship with you. And you've fractured that reality because you've broken these rules. And not just because you've broken the rules, but it's created a break in the relationship. And so yes, there is judgment. And yes, the people of God have broken covenant and, and God's heart is for the relationship with the people. What does God tell Jeremiah? God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to fortify you because man, this is not an easy task I'm inviting you to. This is not fun to talk about. This is painful and challenging. And in verse 19, it says, these people will fight against you understandably but will not overcome you, for I am with you. I am with you, and I will rescue you, or I will deliver you. I am with you. See, when Jeremiah comes to God, when Jeremiah listens to God, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be all right. Things don't go so great. Jeremiah has to pronounce a lot of judgment. There is this really deep pain and turmoil and suffering that exists. And, and God says, I will be with you. When we listen to God, it doesn't mean that everything is just going to be okay. It doesn't mean that our whole life is just going to have an easy street and everything will be paved before us. And when we listen to God, we are reminded that God is with us. God is with us in our pain and our suffering, and God is with us in our joy and our triumph. God is with us when we are in the stream of God's will, and God is with us when we muck it up. God promises, I will be with you. That is an ever-present promise in Scripture. I will be with you, the both-andness 
of God. Now, I will admit, uh, I have a hard time with this. Uh, it's not an easy thing. I, I can intellectually, like, that makes sense. But the thing of letting it permeate kind of your being, right, to your heart, to your guts, to your spagizomai, the innermost part of yourself, that's, that's hard. And I was uh, processing this a bit with Pastor Britta, talking about this sermon of, you know, like, this is, I, th- I think this is true, like, this makes sense, but, like, this is hard for me to, like, how does this feel? And so I had this uh, experience, I don't know if you've had these experiences, where something kind of within you that you don't really, like, think, you'd never say this out loud, but there's a, a way that you live that kind of bubbles out and you say it and you're like, did I really just say that? Like, do I actually think that? And so as I was processing about this sermon and about this idea that, you know, God is with us in all things, I said, you know, I'm having kind of a hard time with this. I think I function this way. I think I function that if it's good, it must be because of God. And if it's bad, it must be because of me. Did I really just say that? That if it must be good, it must be because of God. And if it's bad, it must be because of me. Now, I know this isn't a a general experience for all people. But it illustrates this either-or kind of thinking. That either it's good and it's of God, or it's bad and it's because of me. And that leads to some really big misformed theology. And to some really big dissonance in how we engage with life. Because then it means that God couldn't possibly be present in the bad things. If it's bad, it's my fault. God couldn't be there with me. And it also means, it also means that if everything goes wrong, it must be my fault. That every bad thing that happens is because I didn't pray hard enough. Or I wasn't faithful enough. Or I didn't work hard enough. Do you see how this either-or kind of thinking creates dissonance in the reality of what God says? This either-or thinking then says that everything is my fault and it's all because of me. And it's easy to read Jeremiah that way because Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment. And Jeremiah is saying the people of God have broken covenant with God. And. And God's heart is to be in relationship with God's people. It should have been over. It should have been done. They broke the covenant. And yet, God still desires to be in relationship with God's people. The people of God do experience exile. They are in exile. And the temple does fall. And yet, the presence of God is with them. The presence of God wasn't contained by the temple. The presence of God wasn't going to leave them where they were. The presence of God would meet them where it found them and then move them forward into reconciled life with God and with one another. This is the good news of the both andness of the gospel. That God is present with us in the muck and God is present with us in the life. God is present with us in the both andness. And so this is why we uh, do these practices of like coming to the table of communion. Like focusing our hearts on centering prayer. Because it helps us to remember that God is present with us in the stuff. Right? Think about this idea of of withness. Like I was like, I could preach a whole other sermon. I won't. I promise I'm done. Uh, The table. Jesus. Literally God with us. Literally a new covenant established in Christ's 
blood to reconcile us to God and to one another, to restore the relationship. That's what we do when we come to the table. God's not waiting like a lion ready to pounce when we make a mistake. God's inviting us with an intent, watching and waiting for us to respond to the invitation to be in right relationship with God through Jesus. And so as we prepare to come to this table, I want to invite us uh, into this spiritual practice that we've been called, or that has called centering prayer. And this practice of centering prayer is simply our intention to be present to God who is present to us. And so a lot of times we uh, will we'll enter into this practice for a set period of time. I will take care of that for you today. And it can be helpful to center on what we call a centering word, some way to help your mind get to your heart of this reality. Like, I just want to name that, right? It's easy. Like, you've probably heard God's with you in everything before. Maybe you haven't. God's with you in everything. And that might sound right. Oh, God's with you in everything. But for that to sound right versus for it to penetrate your being, that's a whole different thing. And so the reason we do this centering prayer practice is to practice being present to God who is present to us. And so it can be helpful to have this centering word. The word that I often focus on is the word Yahweh which is what the uh, Jewish people called God. And it sounds like your breath. Yahweh. Yahweh. And so as you come to God in prayer, in stillness, perhaps focusing on that Yahweh-ness of how you breathe in the presence of God. And so as we prepare to come to this table, I invite you to find a posture of comfort, uh, to close your eyes, perhaps to hold out your hands before you in this posture of being open to the presence of God who is present to you, to slow your mind and your thoughts. There's so much happening. You've just heard me talk for a really long time, and that might have nothing to do with what God is doing in your life. So allow your thoughts to kind of pass through your mind. When a thought or an idea comes, just gently hold it and then gently release it. Slow down and focus on your breathing. And perhaps breathe in and breathe out. So spend these holy, awe-inspiring moments in stillness and quiet. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me,
Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I rise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Christ with me. Christ with 